Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm Professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. We'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field, where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. Future Building is proudly sponsored by Building 4.0 CRC. In this episode, I talk with MIT's Dr. Andrea Shigou about real estate and technology. Andrea is director of the Real Estate Innovation Lab at MIT, which, as you will hear, takes a broad look at the various barriers and opportunities facing buildings and property and the impact of technology, not only on society, but on the planet. Andrea's background is in financial economics, and she has a strong grounding in data science. As we discuss towards the end of the interview, Andrea makes a passionate plea for a new accord around data and ethics. She sees the pandemic crisis as an opportunity for a friendly, helpful, and even benevolent view of data science and the benefits it could bring to society if it were harnessed for good as well as for profits. It was a wide-ranging discussion with some expected topics, such as a discussion around the future of cities and offices in a post-pandemic world, and some unexpected topics, such as Martian concrete or why Andrea prefers to track technologies rather than companies. I hope you'll enjoy our interview. I spoke with Andrea in September 2020. Uh, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, where am I talking to you today, uh, Andrea? Unfortunately, I'm not at MIT. <laughs> I am out in Western Massachusetts, in, out in the woods, um, getting some good uh, tree time. Excellent. Well, look, I'm glad to hear that. I want to kick off by talking about your discipline uh, and your background. Firstly, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with real estate as a discipline, what constitutes the discipline and how did you personally come to it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so real estate is, is qu quite a big world. And when I explain it to my students, I usually say, you know, that's the place where the buildings go to be bought and sold, whether they're commercial or residential buildings. Um, and there's a world that sort of buys and sells them and then uses that uh, to pass on to other investors as, as income. So your pension, for example, has a lot of uh, funds that potentially come from, you know, the real estate in cities and the real estate in buildings, um, the real estate in houses, et cetera, et cetera. So the discipline of real estate is really surrounded around the, you know, the buying and selling of commercial and residential real estate, but it expands broadly into real estate development. So how are we going to get these buildings off the ground? So that means it touches architecture, it touches construction, it touches, um, of course, leasing and brokerage, and then it also touches demolition. So when I say I work in real estate, I, I kind of touch all aspects of this broader group of just domains called the built environment. Great. And so if I was a, uh, I, I always forget the terminology in the US, I'm just going to say freshman. If I was a freshman and I was studying real estate, that's probably not possible, but let's just say it were, uh, what would I learn? What kind of subjects would I be taught? Yeah. So we would teach you about like who are the owners of real estate in both the residential and also the commercial real estate domain. So who owns the buildings in the city? 
um, and who buys and sells them overall, and you know how does the city, you know, planning organization get involved, and how do architects help in that process, and how do contractors or construction projects get done to help these buildings get built in the city, and then big picture, we're always talking about helping stakeholders understand, you know, what are the rents that tenants um, are willing to pay, what are the transaction prices that these buying buyers and sellers are willing to to pay for these buildings and just understanding overall the big picture marketplace so when people say well what did you do how did you actually come in to be a commercial real estate expert you say well actually i did a lot of school so i became a financial economist i did my phd in that but then ultimately i specialized and i focused on this um, niche but incredibly large financial sector called commercial and residential real estate where we have to find out what are the prices um, for these specific types of building assets and we generally in business school we treat them like assets but i know for those of you who work um, on making these wonderful things that they're actually they're real things and you're like no these are physical real things and that's what makes our industry incredibly special because on the one hand it's an asset and it is actually priced and treated like an asset. And on the other hand, it's actually a real physical, tangible object. So it's quite different than other assets like equities or bonds in that way. As we heard in the introduction, you wear a lot of hats, but one of them is as director of uh, real estate innovation lab at MIT. Can you tell us uh, what you do in the lab and what the broader mission of the center is? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is align incentives between these different groups. So if you look at the broader umbrella of the built environment, you have planners, you have architects, you have construction contractors, um, you have all of these individuals who are busy with making this incredibly amazing product that we get to live with in cities for better part of a hundred years. And that is so incredibly special because we get one great shot at that. But we don't do a very sophisticated process of looking at what is the best possible building that we could put up. So in terms of environmental performance or in terms of health performance or in terms of what types of tenants we should have in there or what should we do to make a great building from a design standpoint. So what we try to do is align incentives between these different groups that speak these different languages by speaking one uniform language. So the financiers generally speak to value and the architects say, for example, speak to design or design metrics. And so we, we merge these two worlds by having them speak the same language and translating what are the design sort of strategies you need to do to make a great building and what are the ones that actually make money back to the financiers so that they can actually be aligned um, together. So we really love, um, you know, focusing on topics like that. So, you know, within the lab, we have five core areas that we're focused on. We love to look at what are technology and design interventions that we can make in the built environment. And for the past eight years that I've been at MIT, I've learned a lot about how we're trying to progress the built environment to be uh, more advanced, more sustainable, healthy, more quality enhanced. Um, we have another pillar where we're really focused on data science and machine learning for real estate. We're really trying to understand what the frontier of measurement is and what we can do to bring our industry along to have great data science or great listening skills to what's good. Um, we really spend a lot of time on the value of innovation. So what are the value propositions and the ROI 
um, metrics that we can deliver to stakeholders to say, hey, this makes sense for me as an institutional investor, but also um, as a designer or as a planner or as a city government. We also ask the questions around design um, and also keep our fingers on the pulse of the prop tech sector. So all of those startups that are rising across the globe. You know, when I first started at MIT, there was something like $200 million a year that was being invested in you know, tech or technology ventures uh, for the built environment. Now we're up to like 30 billion a year. So it's, it's been a big change in shift. So we wanna keep our finger on the pulse of that. So we, we focus on those five core areas and we see that that delivers um, insight and uh, an alignment between these various groups across the built environment. Oh, thanks for that. I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to some of those five points in a little bit, but you kind of mentioned uh, some of the stakeholders, the likely stakeholders and likely um, recipients perhaps of the research that you make. Uh, can you tell us who some of your industry partners are in, in the lab uh, and what kind of projects you work on? Yeah, so um, we work with uh, generally global organizations just so we can hang out and understand you know, what are they working on? What are they dealing with? And more importantly, what are the issues that they face on a day-to-day -day basis in trying to help transform the built environment? So for example, EY, um, they've been a partner and they've been helping us to work through an understanding of what does it mean to automate for the built environment? So what is this word automation? Um, what does it mean for actually the physical asset to become automated? What does it mean for actually tenant engagement to become automated? Um, so we've been working on questions like that with them. Um, we've been working with uh, JLL, which is a global brokerage firm to actually answer questions around um, what types of technologies are influential for the built environment. So we've worked with them for the past two and a half years on a, a, a tracking tool called the MIT Technology Tracker. Um, keep it simple, right? And the idea there is to understand what are all of the technologies that could potentially impact the built environment or have and start to track their progress over time to get an assessment of what we need to pay attention to next, especially when it comes to, you know, the hype around technologies. We want to remove that hype. We want to get a little bit more sophisticated around how can we make better decisions, especially when we're going to build something that lasts 100 years, right? Yeah. So... We're working with, with groups like that. We've worked with global data providers like Real Capital Analytics. Um, we work with uh, Prologis, which is a global transportation and logistics group. Um, they're like the, the landlord <laughs> uh, to Amazon. So we work with them on like carbon emissions questions, um, trying to understand you know, how we can actually change the environmental performance um, of the transportation and logistics sector. Um, so we work on very, with various partners, generally global, to try to answer questions to um, understand strategies for, for better buildings and a better urban environment. That's great. Well, um, I've got a bunch of questions that um, are related to the elephant in the room, which is obviously the condition we're under with the pandemic. But I, I want to continue and, and go a little deeper on the tech tracker that you mentioned just now. Um, obviously, your group has spent a fair bit of time uh, developing such trackers and other market review intelligence uh, that you mentioned before. The other thing that you introduced me to when we first met back in 2018 was this technology hype cycle and the uh, Gartner hype cycle. 
I wonder uh, if for our audience, you could briefly explain what that technology hype cycle is, and then we can probably come back and talk a little bit more about your tech tracker and, and, and how it relates to that. Yeah, that, that's great. So um, historically here at MIT, Ashley, and, and um, also at Harvard, there's been this fascination with how technologies can actually help us to uh, influence economic growth. So how do, how do we help the society grow and change and, um, and make life easier for humans? It's, it's kind of like our obsession. And there's been various Nobel Prize winning economists who have worked on this, on this topic. And one of them most famously is, is, is this gentleman by the name of Solo. And he created this S curve of innovation. So understanding how technologies rise and fall and then pass through um, into society with being actually something that is incredibly useful for us to be able to push society forward. And we've had many types of technologies that have done this in the past, right? So um, we talk about electricity as like a consumer uh, technology, or we can even talk about like the history of computing, right? Computers overall, these are big systemic, really relevant technologies that have transformed society. For the built environment, right, we always cite the elevator, right? This was a huge technology that had uh, transformative impacts and how we could scale or shift the building into um, the vertical. And that has had tremendous impacts on how many people we can actually get into buildings. And these are big, big movers in terms of GDP because they change how much income per unit we can actually get out of it. And so we care about that. And so there's been various consulting groups over the years um, who have then taken that S-curve and applied it to entrepreneurial theory and even other sectors in, in the economy, like uh, some general technology types of groups. And Gartner, which is a publicly traded firm, they went out and they actually started to create um, a, dope, like a, a framework, a consulting framework around that. And what it does is it sort of, it helps us to understand um, the relative context of where new emerging technologies are in their development um, from being say, very innovative and you've never heard of it before, all the way to potentially to being something that is out in its productivity zone and you haven't, you know, you don't even really think of it as an emerging technology. You may not even associate with that fancy word anymore. You'd be like, that's just a smartphone, right? I don't need to pay attention to that as a technology anymore. It's something I take for granted. So they created this curve and they said, you know, we're looking at, you know, this, this range of performance along this expectations axis. So if you're going to try to visualize this in your head because I know everybody's listening at the moment. You know, what we're trying to understand is what we expect from these technologies over time. And that follows like this, you know, I have no expectations to, I think that everything is going to be solved by this particular technology and in the Gartner framework that's called the peak of inflated expectations to when it actually comes back and it's, it's no longer, you know, everybody's like, it, it didn't, it didn't deliver. Um, actually, like blockchain is in that moment right now. Everybody's like, ah, blockchain can't solve all of our problems. But really, actually, blockchain is just working through its technological kinks and, and really starting to be incredibly useful for the general economy and even for the built environment probably over the next five to 10 years. And so what we decided to do is, you know, so the Gartner has its particular framework. It's a publicly traded company. That's fantastic. But it really didn't pay very much attention to the built environment because it's not within its domain. But it also didn't put a lot of like sequential metrics down um, for the general public. And so what we decided to do with the tech tracker 
um, is read every single paper that we possibly could on science and technology and understand how we could track systemically technology's progress over time um, and start to measure that. And so we've been collecting technologies that impact the built environment. So from things as old as elevators and virtual reality um, and augmented reality to things as new as um, uh, Martian concrete and hypercells and um, 3D assembled graphene and, you know, sort of all these new types of materials and products and processes that are actually, you know, one day going to really impact us. And some things like, say, digital twins or, you know, robotic construction, you know, anthropod robotics for construction that are, that are starting to hit the ground now, whether you believe in them or not, right, that's an emotional thing, but they're starting to actually make traction and make progress. So, we're tracking all of these different technologies along this timeline so we can get a sense of what is happening when they're coming and do that without the hype and instead with data um, so we can make more sound decisions about expectations and, and when to in, you know, use and when to invest and when to learn about them. Just get a little bit more structured as, I think, as a more skeptical industry, right? So real estate, construction, <laughs> architecture, you know, these are much more skeptical industries than I think than other parts of the economy. So we've got to do a little bit more due diligence before we do any, you know, put anything in the building that's going to be there for about a hundred years. In terms of due diligence, I just have to go back and say, did I hear you correctly when you referred to Martian concrete? <laughs> yeah. So um, what's an exciting thing that has happened I think, you know, certainly around the globe, there's a there's another space race that's going on. It's not as exciting, I would say, as the one that happened in the 50s and 60s, um, or maybe it is. Um, and right now we're trying to all go to Mars. And so there's lots of R&D projects being developed um, at governmental and non-governmental agencies, and even the private sector um, is involved. And there's a lot of new technological developments about not only how we're going to get to Mars, but also what on earth we're going to do once we get there, because we can't just turn around. Um, we've got to, we've got to stay for a little bit. So we've got to create structures. We've got to construct and, and build and design to actually be there. And so there's been groups that compete on an annual basis, um, say, for example, through NASA uh, to try to build uh, structures that could actually live in Mars. And they're going to have to be, you know, built in a different way than how we do them here. So there's a lot of lending and working on specifically 3D printing. So there's a lot of advances there that we're seeing, but also in materiality because Mars is a super harsh climate. Um, so we're gonna need to think about how sustainable actually the, the concrete or the fibers are gonna be able to tether together if they're gonna be able to actually set. Um, so not not to go too details into it, but it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, and some of the companies that are coming out of that are actually then you know, selling their, their products here on Earth in the meantime. Well, I have to say that I, I, you've now uh, predicted uh, successfully what my first uh, Google search will be after we finish recording. It's going to be Martian concrete. <laughs> um, so, so thank you. Thank you for that one. I, I want to just quickly come back to the, the technology hype cycle. And what of this rumor that you broke the technology hype cycle? Well, what was that? 
Um, that that's 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 cute. But um, what what I would say is that um, what we what we want to do, particularly for the built environment, um, is we really want to we want to back it up with data, um, and and not expectations and hype. So we really need data for our in our industry to be able to track where things are at, and when we should start to get ready to learn about it what we should think about and investing and when we should think about using it. And I, I think that's why we're transforming a lot of these disparate data sources that we would find around, you know, oh, look, this company just got started and they're using Martian concrete, for example, or, um, oh, they just passed a patent on um, 3D uh, assembled buildings um, for, for Martian. I, I mean, we keep coming back to the Mars example, but there's been a lot of patents in development around say uh, digital twins, for example. So th this has been in development for the past 35 to 40 years. So if you were tracking and, and watching the development of this particular type of technology, which has been rebranded or renamed digital twin, but it's, it's also sort of 60 BIM in, in other circles. And so if you're thinking about that, um, that naming conventions and also the advancement of that technology, you might feel a little bit differently about incorporating that technology into your um, institutional development strategy, right? So there are large scale global institutional developers and they're like, wait a second, I just can't put anything in there. There are governments and cities that trust me for, for delivering buildings into their cities. I have to do that wisely. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're really trying to say, let's not call this hype. Let's take the emotion out of it and let's start to count our experiences around something. And, and cutting to that counting uh, and measuring, the, uh, I've seen um, in the recent presentation you gave at the Autonomous Building Summit hosted by Len Lease uh, last week, actually, September 10th, uh, that you spoke about the timeframe uh, that it took some of these innovations to get through that cycle and that pipeline as it were can can you maybe take an example and just uh quickly walk us through what those time frames look like because i found them surprising yeah i'm well i'm curious what you found surprising as well um and and i always like to to learn about that so i think some context is relevant here um and thinking about how long it took a technology say from you know 1899 uh to 1900 you know, technologies that are being developed at that time for in comparison to say a technology that was being developed in 1999 to 2000. Mm. And just thinking about the differences in time period. For elevators, for example, it took quite a substantial amount of time before that, you know, the first inception moment of actually being able to develop this movable box inside of a building um, with pulleys, <laughs> you know, is that super sophisticated, but yeah. to, to actually put all of those, those components actually together. And then from, from that moment to actually moving it all the way to being something that was systematically used in buildings. Um, the first ones were picketed. They were the devil incarnate. Um, you know, that took quite a long time. So, you know, the first commercial use of them may have taken close to 40 years but then the actual standardization and adoption of them took another 20 to 25 years. So it's quite a journey that technologies take, that used to take for back then. Today, you know, that time span is compressing um, and that, that time span isn't compressing on average. So technologies 
um, from inception all the way to being standard. And when I say standard, that's something that, you know, a national standards body or a code is willing to say is, it's, it's okay to, to essentially use that. And so we, it doesn't always take the time that we, we find on average, but it, it does take most of the time, this amount of time. So about 41 and a half years is our current estimate, but it can take as little as like five to eight years, it, which is amazing. Um, but it, it, can, it can take longer. It can take closer to 65 to 70 years in some instances. And that really depends on the complexity of the technology and how embedded other technologies are in it. So that means no, no technology anymore is sort of in it of itself something. We kind of pair lots of technologies together to make new stuff nowadays. And that makes sense given the sort of advancement um, where we're at. So, so big picture, you know, from inception, the moment that you, you and I don't even know that it exists. Well, maybe not me anymore, but um, but the, the general user on the street does not know that these technologies are being developed or invented. Um, either in the lab or with commercial companies or even in R&D institutes or governments, um, all the way to when, you know, the first moment that we're actually seeing it as a commercial product that you can buy. And that takes about 20 years um, to get from that inception moment to that first commercial product. But then, then many institutional companies are still uncomfortable with actually using it at that moment. And I get why for the built environment, maybe less so for consumer technology, but um, and we're looking into those, those number differences, but what we, what we do see is those, those time differences um, are about, it's about 20 years from inception until I'm going to be able to buy it. Yeah, I understand. And, and I think my surprise came from the sort of 35, 40 year period numbers that you were citing there, given that many of us have become accustomed to this really rapid cycle of change and disruption that's happening in industries. I was just reflecting that 10 years ago, I was in the United States and Netflix was sending me DVDs in, a, in the post. Uh, and today, just 10 years later, they're one of the biggest content producers in the world or, you know, a company like Google, which is now probably one of the first uh, interfaces that everyone sees in, in the day was not much of a company 20 years ago. And so it's these sorts of really rapid cycles that I, I guess I had in mind. And some of the, the longer timeframes that you're referring to are actually not just the implementation of the business model, right? It's actually the, the development of the, of the underlying technology. Yeah, it's also including Sergey Brin's development of the search algorithm behind Google um, and, and, and that trajectory up. And I think, you know, there's so much that we, we sort of associate between a technology and a firm, and that's just natural, right? I don't blame anybody for doing that. Um, and one of the reasons why we like to focus on technologies kind of instead of the firms is because the technologies are useful for all of us. And we you know, even today, we now use that that backbone of that search algorithm um, that Sergey had developed. Um, you know, and that's one of those rare examples of like also the lone kind of inventor because he was building off of the shoulders of giants as well. And I think utilizing these specific examples, like the smartphone, that's another one that I always love. Like that is an incredibly complex technology. It actually has its own movie. It's called the um, the Magic Box. Um, so the story of how, you know, the smartphone kind of came together and people were like, we're going to put a camera with a computer and that's going to be huge. Like that was the first sort of idea. Like we're going to, 
know, put all of these things together. And that, you know, that had um, developmental, you know, expansion and then contraction. And, um, you know, there were groups that worked on it and then they disbanded and then another group worked on it. And then somehow it came back, you know, to these different, you know, private companies to work on. And it was another special example of a private company also technology development. And that doesn't always happen. There, there are some things that happen out of say, um, you know, great universities in Australia and great universities in America. And so it, it's a very complex little ecosystem to look at and study and understand and see where like really cool stuff is coming out of so that we can kind of learn about it faster. I, I think that's the most important thing is that you know, if we just start from the company moment, that's great, but we we might be listen, missing out on the, the wider opportunity of saying, well, maybe we should be pushing Martian concrete a little bit earlier because it's really sustainable. And that can help us with um, the mass <laughs> migration and displacement we're getting ready to face um, due to climate change, right? So I like looking at technologies just to broaden the horizon. It's not that I ignore the firms, but I like looking at that broader perspective because I feel like it helps me to open up my mind to the greater toolbox that humanity has to solve problems. And if I can help the built environment, you know, which is one third of global um, carbon emissions, which is, you know, one third of global GDP, you know, if I can help any segment of that really kind of advance and, and move better and be more thoughtful to the occupants that are in the buildings, um, just by saying, hey, look, look at this buffet of technologies that our humans are coming up with to make this better. Look, we've got other tools. We don't have to stick with the same stuff that we always have. Um, I think that's worthwhile and, and worth a little bit of investment in time. I, I agree. And I think it's a, it's a really good point that you make to distinguish between the companies and the technologies. And, and I, I find a, a lot of utility in that. I want to turn now uh, to the pandemic and the economic crisis and the, the general outlook. We've heard a lot in the news about the future of work becoming more remote, and I, and I want to get into that a little bit with you. Generally speaking, what do you make of these discussions? Uh, do you think this is here to stay? Do you think this is a passing trend? Uh, and, and, and what kind of impact do you think this is going to have on cities and urban life more generally post-pandemic, whenever that might be? Oh, these are great questions. I love them. We... We structurally change with every crisis, if we look back at economic history anyway. So we, we structurally make changes. You know, the 1918 pandemic did tremendous things for the built environment. We, we, we really pushed hard on health and safety. We changed materials. Um, so you know, tiles, we really got into tiles, subway tiles and enhanced hygiene. Um, it changed urban design. Um, it really shifted the way that we would structure our cities and provide public resources on hygiene. So I think there was tremendous transformation that we've seen throughout time and history whenever, whenever our health and well-being is threatened. So from an immediate standpoint, I think that the buildings overall will pay attention to how do we keep ourselves healthy, um, engaged, and, and, and well. I think um we will go back to buildings i think we will go back you know when people say well we'll never go to the offices the offices will be dead and the the retail stores will be dead and we will never go back to them again i i i we tend not to do that as a society we we tend to um we we tend to use all of the tools in our toolkit 
Um, so I think we'll still definitely use buildings and I, I think we'll still have stores and I think we'll still have offices. Um, we just might use them differently. And one way that we might do that is we might get more organized, um, more uh, engaged and organized and how our health and well-being can be enhanced in those buildings and also how we can manage our time better um, between say getting to and from that space and communicating more effectively. I might just pick you up on that point because um, it, there's a moment of schadenfreude here, but it's, you know, uh, we've heard it many times throughout the pandemic, never never waste a good crisis. And, and I guess I'm interested to see, you've mentioned just health and well-being just now. Um, I know more generally that you're very much interested in wealth inequality and, and matters around climate change. And I guess I'm wondering if you see any opportunities, as it were, in this present crisis. Oh, well, of course, there's there's tons of opportunities in the sense that um, for some segments of the population, we're banding together and getting organized. Um, we're getting prepared and we're, we're sort of looking at some of these crises and, and trying to figure out and solve problems um, in a constructive way. Um, and there are those that are not, I mean, needless, I'm not gonna turn political on the call, but big picture, there's, there's definitely opportunities in getting organized. And, and I think there I can give two clear examples. The first um, is around data and ethics. So we are having a tremendous debate about what is private information um, and what is information that can be used about our experience, our health, our well-being that could be for the betterment of all of us to say survive this pandemic. Um, that comes with these track and trace sort of algos that are being put out and whether or not we would get adoption of those. So right now we're having um, uptake in certain populations um, who are willing to actually engage, and some who are um, rightfully skeptical about what's happening there. I think as a data scientist, we should have a very healthy debate and discuss standards and protocols around data privacy and ethics um, to get on the same page, to get very organized around um, public data about ourselves. We've never really had a proper conversation about it, you know, people, you know, there are companies that use data about us. We have a data, I, would, I call it a data tail, right? Whenever, whenever you're walking around, there's a little bit of an imaginary data tail behind you. And I think what's fascinating about that is that we don't really have a constructive conversation about who owns that, what are the rights to that, um, what should we, you know, hand over and not. And I think that this pandemic is an excellent time to have that debate. And I see in some areas where we're starting to. So that's a healthy conversation we're gonna have for the next 30 to 50 years, especially as we digitize further. And that's really good because we need to have those conversations around all the times we're gonna get displaced, especially when it comes to climate change, other pandemics, especially due to climate change. COVID-19 is a zoonotic disease. It came from an animal. It jumped over because that animal lost part of its habitat or was being actually poached in another habitat and brought into a human habitat. So this happens every once in a while when we engage or encroach a lot um, on the natural environment. I'm, I'm not being political here. I'm just saying this, this is kind of how this works. So this isn't the last one, folks. We've, we, we have them. <laughs> We've always had them in society. So we should, we should be very organized in how we deal with that. 
And I think that this was an epic wake-up call. And I would say the biggest outcry that we've had here in the States is around organization. We want, so there were so many people that were ready to be so organized. And then there was just this sort of lack of political and all sorts of, we, we could have a whole, <laughs> we could have a whole podcast on that, but <laughs> I won't go into that. But there is a data science and ethics strategy that we could, we could utilize that some are already engaged in, but we could have a constructive conversation as a society about what that means for us and continuously engage in it. I'm not saying it's going to be one and done, but I think that that's an incredible opportunity that can serve us in so many different domains for so many other crises that we're facing. Automation, climate change, yeah. health inequality, um, income inequality. These are just areas where we could, we, could, we could have a constructive conversation instead of being um, fearful. We could face it and talk about it. I'm not saying that there isn't going to be nefarious actions. I'm just saying that we need to, we need to face it because nefarious things are gonna happen now too, but we're just not gonna be as aware. Um, so I, I just would rather be informed. And that makes sense to me too, Andrea, given that I know uh, you see part of your work as providing those data foundations for built environment industries. Um, so I, I can completely understand why you would jump to the you know, data and ethics question. It makes a lot of sense and it's completely fraught at the moment. Um, you know, just in the last month or so, we've seen the big four technology companies for various reasons, but not unrelated to some of these issues as well, be called to Washington to answer for various sins. Um, I think it's a really big question uh, and uh, we, we really need to solve it, particularly as these built environment industries, as you well know much better than I, uh, are embarking on a, on a, on a data journey uh, right now. Um, I, I do just want to go back quickly because uh, we're getting close to the end and, and uh, quickly ask you for your views on a couple of the big, big tech meet property companies, uh, companies like Airbnb uh, or, or even WeWork and what the pandemic has done to them and maybe what this discourse and change behaviors of uh, the population mean for their business models. Do, do you have a view on that or is there anything that you would like to share about those two companies with us? I think um, I would feel more comfortable speaking to the co-working sector or the shared economy sector overall. Those two individual companies are, you know, very unique um, uh, expressions of those of those two different domains. You know, they have many competitors in their space. But what I would say about first about co-working, you know, people have said co-working will now die. The pandemic has killed them. Um, can kill the whole business model or idea altogether. And again, it comes back to this idea um, of, of how we use things as a society that are useful to us. The thing that co-working did was it, it took a contract structure, like a three to five to seven year lease or a 10 to 12 year lease. And it said, how do we break this into smaller um, time increments and smaller spatial increments so that people who do not need all of that space or do not need all of that time could actually use that. And I think, you know, this, the same is true for, you know, how Airbnb um, and the wider shared um, hoteling community sort of engaged in their strategy for, for housing um, or for hotels. How did they also do that for offices? And I think that breaking up in time 
um, is useful. It's just useful for us. So I don't think we're going to get rid of that. I think one of the things that was unique also with these particular companies is that they, um, they had a particular strategy on engagement. So they had a customer service and customer experience engagement layer that real estate traditionally did not have with all due respect. Um, you, you're a tenant, that's, that's your role and you pay me and that's, you know, that's the relationship. Whereas this, this other thing, you know, this, these other co-working establishments were like, what else can we do to have an experience together? Maybe this is more of a service as opposed to um, this, this sort of principal agent sort of experience. So just taking that different lens, um, I think, lended itself to that. Now, will they survive ultimately with respect to enhanced hygiene um, and with respect to enhanced health and well-being standards? Um, so far, it seems that, you know, with the arrival of Airbnb's IPO, it's a very interesting time for them to actually take, take and do another fundraise, but it's also an IPO is a fundraise. So they, they want to get out, get out there and bet on the future value of their entity. Um, so I think that that's a very interesting idea. We work, of course, famously with Drew last year. Um, due to some governance issues. But again, when we read through their IPO statement, there was significant governance issues in, in their documentation that um, institutional markets were just not comfortable with. Um, so I, I think that, that, that we work in particular, that particular case had a, have a, had a governance mechanism, not necessarily um, a fully failed business model. You know, big picture, um, we've done a lot of work on co-working and, and what it means for office markets. And um, they're not, these co-working providers aren't going anywhere anytime soon. They've, they've, they've taken up really long leases in buildings all around the world. They take on average 10 to 12 year leases. Um, and that's extraordinary because they're, they're, they're a part of the anchors um, of our city, it's, at least in the next, um, you know, five to seven years. So for the, for the institutional investors that I'm aware of and for your mother and in your pension funds, um, I, I'm really hoping that actually we don't have a systemic default on behalf of co-working providers and that they find workouts with their, with their consumers to figure out a, a financial strategy like the other office, um, you know, owners and, and tenants are, are doing now. There's systemic workouts being done everywhere. So um, we're all facing a crisis and a crunch. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Thank you. Before we do move to wrap up, I, I, I do want to ask if there's something about the building industry that you wish more people would pay attention to, or if you think will make a, a critical difference to the future of building. I know we've covered a lot of issues, but uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe touch on something that that's unrelated to the questions I may have asked. Yeah, no, I think that um, the area that I, I teach a lot, that I focus on a lot, um, of course, is technology. And we spoke a lot about that. But the other one is really data science um, and more of these advanced decision making tools like econometrics and machine learning that our industry is normally like, I can't pay attention to that. That is way too much for me. Um, and what I like to do is dispel that notion. And the reason being is that data scientists are great. Well, if they're good ones, they're great listeners. They're really paying attention to the events, experiences, 
and transformations of the built environment. And they're, they're collecting that information systematically so they can help us understand where are things working and where are things are not. Just like a great therapist does or a great friend does, right? You tell your friend your stories and they, over time, they start to build up sort of an understanding of a pattern around how you behave for better or for worse, right? And that's really what data scientists are doing. They're understanding systematically, you know, what is working for us and what is not. And I would love to have an army of data scientists around, around the built environment, around the world, you know, looking at all of our experiences, listening to young and old and how they're transforming buildings. You know, I don't want anybody to feel threatened. You know, I don't want to, I don't want our, our veteran generation um, of contractors or developers or brokers to feel like we're out to displace them. That is not it. Actually, if anything, we're here to listen and to learn, especially their tacit knowledge um, and just understand actually how we can help make better decisions um, and engage a wider framework. You know, I need to incorporate health. I need to incorporate social justice and environmental performance. I, I need to think about income inequality. And that means widening our perspective and understanding how other elements of information and stories and experiences can be incorporated. And that takes some data. And so my big, you know, my, I run around and everybody calls me, they're like, oh, here comes the data queen. And I'm like, yes, that's, that's a perfectly good name for me. <laughs> you, should, you should definitely call me that if, that if that's what you really need to do to sink at home. Because I want you to feel like I'm, we're listening and we're being ethical in how we're listening. And we're also helping you to make decisions. But like ones that help us all, like make a great healthy building or just don't sink this whole urban environment into the ocean because you didn't think about, you know, the right podium that can fight that, that 50 year high tide line. So, you know, we're just really trying to come up with these various ways that we can, can listen um, and report that back. And that, that takes an army of data scientists who can speak that language and everybody can. Um, we've turned a lot of people who were once architects or brokers into data scientists over here. So I'm super proud of that. Well, I think I'm going to have to sign up because I really like the idea of this benevolent and broad and responsible data science that you're outlining here. And I also think, Andrea, that's a good place for us to, to leave it for today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and get inside uh, some of your work and some of your ideas a little more. Uh, for our audience, um, notes and references that we've spoken about will be added to the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for listening and thank you, Andrea, for joining us.